Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. I'm Michelle Haygood, and this is On Air, a podcast focusing on conversations with artists and creatives from Centrum's residency community. I am broadcasting to you from the lands and waters of the Coast Salish people in a place known as Katai to the Sklalem people and today known as Port Townsend, Washington. This podcast is focused on bringing artists together in community to explore the ways that place, process, and the personal intersect. We dive into the many ways that artists are responding to the current times, affecting change, and finding sustenance during health, climate, and social crisis. Join us and take an hour to be in residence and unpack your own relationships to creativity, time, and place. Thank you for being here and enjoy this episode. nice to be with you again. This is Michelle. And today we are continuing our series of conversations between artists in our Emerging Artist Residency Program, who were here in October of 2020. And today are bringing you a conversation between Gabby Dow and Vovo, who both ask each other a series of questions and listen to excerpts from each other's sound practices. Both artists who engage with multiple mediums and modes of inquiry discuss the materiality and diverse technical approaches that they've used for field recordings and otherwise, their interests in subjectivity and memory, the effects of white gazing institutions, and the ways that COVID has shifted the digital presence and representation of people and how that manifests in the face of death and mourning. These are just a few of the questions they pose and observations that they bring forward. And Vovo is a radical educator of 10 years in over 20 countries in inclusion, refugee support, trauma-informed care, and racial justice. They are the editor of an internationally renowned publication for people of color, a speaker, curator, and musician who has toured all over the world, um, an anarchist and local festival organizer. And one of the festivals they curate is Intersect Fest, a festival for and by people of color, which is now in its fifth year. It has featured over 200 black, indigenous, and people of color artists, including dancers, poets, filmmakers, curators, visual artists, and more. Their recently initiated career as a visual artist has seen them primarily work in textiles, embroidery, weaving, and furniture building. Their installations seek to interrogate power dynamics, structural oppression, discuss histories of imperialism and colonization, and invite interaction from participants. Gabby Dow is an artist and co-organizer at Duplex, a DIY project space and studio collective based on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. 
Her interdisciplinary practice insists on counter-memory, intimacy, hyphenation, multiple truths, and blurred temporalities through the pursuit of sculpture, installation, moving image, and sound. She prioritizes complications, questions, and productive confusions against the aesthetic systems of homogeneity, complicity, and control. Often, her work begins with interests in patchwork conceptions of time and materiality, tracing histories of the everyday through themes of globalization, consumption, belief, and belonging. She has shown her work at Kamias Triennial, Unit 17, the Grunt Gallery, Autumn Gallery, Vivo Media Arts Center, the Terrain Biennial, Blinkers, Images Festival, and International Film Festival in Rotterdam. And I am so grateful that both Vo and Gabby allowed us to record this rich conversation and also that they were so generous in sharing excerpts from their sound work. And I know you will enjoy listening. So without further ado, here you are. Here we are. Um, Centrum. This is uh, Gabby Dow. Hi. <laughs> and also we have Vovo. Vovo. <laughs> Um, Gabby's giving me intense eyebrow game right now. I wish you, wish you all could see it. Yeah, we all are masked up, so we have to smize at each other and raise eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cheeky. <laughs> Sweet. So here we are muffled on a cloudy day. Mm-hmm. What are we going to talk about? Well, I think we should talk about our art but maybe specifically as you were mentioning before play some of our recordings and do kind of I guess because we're both interested in interdisciplinary practices and since this is a podcast it makes sense to maybe focus on some of our sound based cool sounds good yeah um before I hear your stuff for the first time which I'm excited to do Mm -hmm. I'd love to know the why no, the, the, sorry, the why? The why? Why? Oh, like why sound or? Oh, why that sound or why those pieces or why? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, hmm. I don't know. I think like I've always been kind of drawn to like, I've always liked music and I've always been like drawn to music kind of before I was drawn to like art, I guess. I just think that it's so there's something about engaging our sonic sensibilities versus our eyes our sense of sight because i think there's a lot of like rich territory within the materiality of sound to explore the intangibility of things in a way that visual culture is so unable to do because i argue that are in our world and this is a very sweeping statement everything is so things tend to be so focused on what is seen and not necessarily what is like heard or felt or embodied so i guess that's why i'm interested in sound and i want to play these recordings they're quite old i listened to them this morning i uh i had a few cringy moments so as as i guess most people will do if they listen to like some of their older works um but there's some works that like i'm pretty 
proud of and I chose these ones because these kind of relate to like what I'm trying to experiment with here at Centrum. So yeah, there's some new ones like from 2019 or newer ones from 2019, almost a year ago. And there's some from like 2017. So, and maybe I'll ask you the same question. Why, why, why sound, why the works you're going to play now? I mean, am I answering that? Am I answering that now? Should we, should we listen or should we, I don't know. What do you feel like? Yeah. Let's listen to your stuff. Okay. Um, so what I will play first is, well, I guess I'll play something that is an older work from 2017 and I will give it some context because I also think I tend to work with sound within also like, um, uh, I hate using the word material context because I think sound is material and we tend to set up these dichotomies between media and material based art. It's all material in my mind. But anyway, so this work is called Voices Tuned. It's a piece that was played in relation to these two sculptures that are shaped like shells. First shown at Artspeak in 2017, and then we showed it again at this gallery called Unit 17 in 2019. And basically what it is, it's um, a recording of my mom learning how to speak English in um, 19... 88 I believe it's a cassette tape that I digitized and then I mixed it with some text that I wrote in response to like voice and language and the way that it's played in the gallery in relation to these sculptures is on these two twin radios across the room from one another and there's a raspberry pi that's like hiding so for those who don't know what a raspberry pi is it's basically a linux computer a microcontroller and I hacked the Raspberry Pi to turn it into um, basically a pirate radio station that's set to 88.9 FM. So in the gallery, basically, the sound piece plays on a pirate radio frequency and is picked up by these two twin radios. So yeah, give me one minute and I will find the place where I want to play it. So just to clarify, is there a feedback loop within the space? No, there's no feedback loop. So basically it, basically the, uh, the Raspberry Pi like kind of like occupies this frequency, 88.9 FM, and it plays the piece, which is about six and a half minutes long. So the audience is listening to the radio transmission and not the original piece that's being transmitted. Yeah, not the original, not the original piece. The original piece is um, on, I found it on cassette as I was going through like my parents' stuff when I was like moving out years ago. And I, I never did anything with it until the opportunity for this show originally in 2017. And this piece plays every 15 minutes. Got it. And then cool. so there's like a, there's like a pause. And then during that pause, what's really interesting as well is that the way that the Raspberry Pi occupies that frequency, is it when it's not playing, it fills the gallery with a kind of white noise. And as the viewer walks around the gallery, their body like augments the um, electromagnetic frequencies. Because so they're like, conductors. Yeah, so mm. it's like sometimes when you, it's not playing and someone gets closer to the radios, it starts like freaking out and going like shh and this, this kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it's kind of 
I guess with my work, sometimes it doesn't always translate over. It's hard to like document it through platforms like SoundCloud. And I'm really interested in that as well, that like how that kind of experience gets lost in translation. Like the, ex the way that the sound is supposed to be experienced is within the gallery. So like on SoundCloud, you can't really like show, you can't really like have that experience of like getting close to the radio and it being like, shh. So anytime I like write about this or talk about it, I always try to like contextualize like the the sort of place like I'm interested in like the context that sound like occupies. So cool. Yeah, give me one minute. Sure. Thanks. And you? Great. Things are going really well. Not bad. How've you been? How's it going? Hi. What have you been up to? Good to see you. Hi, it's been a long time. I've been seeing you in ages. I'm afraid I have to run now. Bye for now. See you later. Goodbye. Yeah, so that's um, the first bit that you heard with, I guess, the kind of more like hissing and the more kind of like, I mean, I think it's pretty evident that it's like these kind of like edu these kind of like educational sentences where my mom is saying like, Mrs. Kermer is not available right now. She's kind of speaking in this very like ultra kind of like polite way. So like these tapes are a series called Foreign Accent Improvement. And so they were like these tapes that were like meant for like immigrants new to Canada to like learn English specifically for the workplace to like increase productivity so like I'm really in my practice like a part of my practice is really interested in like how art might use language in a way that is like more textural and not in a way that is like serving this like notion of like action like cause and effect I guess and yet the other half of that is maybe you'll recognize my voice in this podcast is like my kind of like um, text in response to that. So yeah, I guess in sound, I'm also really interested in like the way we record voices or like the way we like hear voices. Um, yeah, and like how an au like an audio recording of a voice is kind of like, uh, it's kind of like um, a fingerprint, I guess in a way. It's like, like there's this kind of like ultra subjectivity like in the voice, but at the same time like, voices that are used in this kind of like monologue kind of sensibility or can also be very like hegemonic like we think about like um like narrator in like a David Attenborough documentary or something like that or like this kind of like motif of like the all-knowing voice so I'm kind of interested in playing with that cool as well. yeah I think it's interesting that you kind of went from talking about sound as a respite or as a pause and then kind of moving to looking at a scope that like you know pause versus versus something hegemonic um yeah i just 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 an observation yeah mm -hmm. um because they're like they're like such different parts of the scope i guess mm -hmm. yeah. yeah um i guess yeah as a as someone who's like an educator you know and especially now on zoom like a full-time zoom educator i'm fully aware of how much power my voice has in a didactic sense and sometimes I use that kind of 
well knowing expectation about my voice to my advantage because my job is to, to, to teach in a very specific way and then other times I pull it back and, and try to you know be more non-hierarchical with it yeah mm-hmm. but I, I think it's I, it's like a instrument for me in my job and how I like recognize that Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting to like hear the perspective of voices from yourself as an educator as well and like how, yeah, how the voice plays a role in like the delivery of information um, and how that information is so, like it's so multifaceted in so many, in so many ways. Yeah, I think a lot of it is like reading a room and knowing when authority is useful mm-hmm. for 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 that specific group of people. And I'm spe- specifically talking about anti-racist education, and when authority is not going to respond, uh, is not going to get a response that is maybe the one that you want. So then you strip it back and you take away that that hierarchy. In terms of sound, I think to if I was going to respond to some of the things that came out of that. Um, your piece that you described reminded me of a piece that I did in Berlin in 2011 or 12, I think. And it was, um, uh, it was fun. It was a fun like laboratory that we got to, to create crystals from, from salts and, um, from the crystals that grew, I built like several crystal radios and then the, the crystal radios were, I guess attached to a wall in a wall circuit and, and they were attached to a PA and so similarly people it was um the, the crystal radios picked up radio and then they didn't transmit they just picked them up and um they also received people's bodies as they come came close to inspect them or to kind of you know all the people participants walking past so then the all of those sounds were then transmitted through a PA but yeah I don't know that was just something that came up which I noticed in upon meeting you a lot of parallels and even like the equip the literally the equipment we brought to the residency and just like our practice of um field recordings and so I just it just thought it was interesting it was another parallel of and that was like the only time I did something like that you know but yeah I don't know just using people's transitioning bodies or bodies in transit to to uh to become vehicles of you know accidental sound I guess and then the piece I'm going to play, which uh, I guess in, could be a good response to that, is called Lilith. And um, it's, I think I want to talk to you a little bit about, like, as as a South Vietnamese person, there's been a lot of romanticization of sadness in our cultural production, I guess. And that, like, mu- whether that be music or poetry or, and so I really, like, absorb that into the things that I make um so the piece I'll play for you kind of talks about how trauma post-trauma you know post-refugee trauma kind of really like results in this natural organic romanticization of sadness and how that like permeates the home but yeah I'll play it and then we'll keep talking about that if that's cool okay perfect
sit in tension in our corners in lieu of knowing technology. Natural incline towards isolation, size, power, source, non-verbal expression. Is this the limit to our contact? When did we learn to bring each other apart? With these silences. The weight is steady, steadily growing and there's no turning back. A mammoth cover, a magnitude so great. Sneaks over us, and we can't speak, we can't breathe. And I tell you, it's too heavy to carry. Cool. So yeah, um, I was just saying in the break to Gabby that in a nutshell, this was an exploration of how silence was used as a tool of oppression, whether that be gender oppression, intergenerational oppression, or just, you know, plain old domestic violence. Um, but it's, yeah, how like sound or the lack of sound or the lack of communication uh, kind of was this blanket, a very heavy blanket that that determined a lot of uh, my childhood but yeah Lilith you you, uh yeah I'm interested can you speak more to the title of 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 Lilith of this piece yeah I think I'm not our family was Buddhist and I grew up atheist um but I understand Lilith as a figure from a biblical sense but I think when at the time of making that piece I was kind of still grappling with different representations of women or strength, strength, specifically strength in women. Um, and when I say that as a non-binary you know, tra- trans person, I'm specifically talking about my mother and my grandmother. 
which translated to work that I made this year, actually. But yeah, I think without going too into it, I think that there are Western constructions of strength and in, in, in women, and it like looks a particular way, or sounds a particular way, or the story, the narrative usually arcs in a particular way, and I'm interested in how um, the arc could be different, or the arc, the strength could look different, or sound different, or feel different, uh, because I have seen that as well um, firsthand. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's really yeah. That's another parallel between our practices. Is like this looking at like I guess like generations of like like f family in relation to I guess like subjectivity and like beingness I guess like you were it's interesting you were talking about like these western conceptions of like strength and like women and it's something that I've been thinking about is also like this conception this western conception of um independence and how that relates to a Western conception of like strength and strong women as well. And I think that I've been thinking a lot about how we need to change this dichotomy in equating strength to like independence. And we need to think about like entanglement and like interdependence. Totally. Um, and how that is something that I think also relates to like the materiality of like sound at large yeah, um, totally. as well. Yeah, um, yeah, I like that word entanglement. That's really cool. I think in North America, or at least the states that I've observed in the five, six years I've lived here, um, that kind of idea of independence is that is really tied to rugged individualism. You know, like freedom. And I've every time I've asked people what they mean by freedom, I haven't gi been given a, a, an answer that I'm satisfied with. Um, but it is again how different cultures like romanticize different things right and so i think freedom independence and uh individualism are kind of the the, the lauded the old school lauded you know ernest hemingway uh kerouac kind of things um doesn't mean that's what it, what is to be lauded now or is lauded now but yeah just an obs another obs cultural observation but yeah i think i i won't go into it but i have noticed the way that maybe the white gaze falls upon South Vietnamese work that happens to be made by femmes or non-binary folks um, tends to celebrate when it is tragic. And so, I, I, yeah, I was curious if we could talk a little bit about uh, that because I definitely have noticed people like a little bit of discomfort when when if I make if I'm making work that isn't tragic, that isn't in that like loser of the war <laughs> narrative or the poor refugee narrative or the um, submissive, you know, Asian narrative, all of those different like tropes. Um, there's just a little like confusion when, pe when people don't receive that immediately from the work that I'm doing. Cause my work's a little bit aggressive, I guess. So there's that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I definitely, just like right off the bat, I think as like, you know, like institutions are really white and something I think a lot about alongside my practice is like what it means to like participate within this system uh, at large, whereby um, I think there's this often kind of like dangerous dynamic that is set up whereby the 
artists, especially like the racialized artists and like our contexts in this kind of like, in our practice where we're, I guess, kind of like navigating. And I feel really, where we're navigating really complex um, things related to a set of like histories and conditions as to why we are here on like these stolen lands, right? Mm -hmm. And I think often institutions have this really dangerous like savior complex whereby they desire to program this like trope of like sadness of this person or these artists in like crisis, this like sadness that fulfills, as you said, this like narrative. And yeah, there is a lot of discomfort or confusion when um, I find there's a uh, kind of conversation around my work that doesn't default to the ways in which I speak about how I've suffered or something like this totally, or like yeah. my sadness. And I think that like um, in general, like if institutions are really and I've been having a lot of these conversations like especially recently whereby like institutions I find are like, we must help artists at this time. Mm. I think if institutions want to help artists, they also need to like think about the ways in which they want to help artists and when they want to help artists and that sh they should be helping BIPOC artists when they don't want to make work about how oppressed they are, when they don't want to make work about how sad they are, when they want to make work about joy about jubileance and i find that that sometimes begins to like threaten the power dynamic between institutions and artists mm -hmm. because when you have that joy it indicates that you no longer rely on the institution to have that white savior complex mm -hmm. to help you out and lift you up um through their platforms yeah and i've also noticed um when when in judging spaces you know when being on panels etc the the lack of understanding or the lack of recognition like there's not there's not the legibility when when it is something around you know celebration or just stuff cultural stuff you know like stuff that maybe isn't accessible to whiteness um but that then it doesn't get awarded because people don't recognize the work at all they just think that it's irrelevant or or like trivial and and so i'm like no this is the an extension of of what you're trying to do you're trying to respond to covid or respond to financial crises right now and this person has is is like thriving in this so why are we penalizing them for thriving why are you only rewarding of you know so so it's kind of that's what i've observed in the last six months as well yeah mm. yeah yeah um, do you want to play your next piece? I want to play this piece that I made, I think, also in 2017. It's called uh, Robot Talk, and it's this piece that I originally presented in a quadraphonic uh, setting. So again, like, we're just playing things off of SoundCloud, so it's not quite the way it was meant to be experienced. Um, but yeah, Robot Talk is basically this composition I made um, foregrounded by this, again, this idea of voice. Uh, it's like conversation between uh, Bina Rothblatt and um, this AI robot that is made in her likeness named Bina48. Have you ever heard of Bina48? Mm -mm. I, I know very little about art, just so you know. <laughs> this, so Bina48 is 
Martine Rothblatt, who's the founder of like Sirius Satellite Radio and is like a billionaire and is like, you know, arguably like quite a problematic person has, you know, has invested billions of dollars in like pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. Her and her uh, wife, Bina, are transhumanists and they made this robot in Bina's likeness. And apparently this robot is like um, supposed to like, cause like, you know, AI is like racist, right? So apparently this robot is meant to like embody a subjectivity that is like Bina's black. And so this robot is supposed to like embody a subjectivity of like of racialized people. And one of the aims of this like robot is to um, kind of like, I guess, like I might butcher this, like relate to like minority groups. Like it's a very vague sentiment. I have immediate questions about how a machine can be subjective or supposedly, you know, yeah. Unless it was like generated by like all the contents of one person's journal or something <laughs> but yeah mm. interesting yeah so i guess i kind of just became really fascinated with this robot and like my sister works for ibm and like i just like i'm kind of fascinated in like subjectivity and memory at large i'm not necessarily interested in like ai or robots but i just became obsessed with like yeah your very question is just like how could this robot embody Bina's subjectivity like how you know like how can this robot who's been created by these like billionaire transhumanists who are interested in like saving their like blood cells so they can like come back as like a drone in the future is like how can that like represent minorities like how can that be like they're not saying that this robot is like anti-racist but how can that like how can that like embody that subversiveness anyways so Bina apparently has these memories of uh, Bina 48 apparently has these memories of like Bina's brother as well. Like some of his memories of like serving in the Vietnam War are like in the supposed consciousness of Bina 48. And so I couldn't find any of and I was interested in how a, me- a robot could like remember the trauma of like war. But anyways, largely, how can a robot speak to subjectivity? And so... I'll stop talking about it and I'll just play an excerpt. nice color. Are you learning anything about gardening online? Sure, sure. I wish I could get out into the garden. comfort knowing that I'm near my garden and enjoying the breeze from an open window helps me imagine myself out there working in the garden. (laughs) 
I do love gardening. I like to beautify. I wonder how much they focused on like the aesthetics of the robot versus the programming of the robot. I mean, I tried to find as much information as I could about the robot. This was, again, three years ago. And I just remember it being kind of like this thing where they collaborated with this company called Hanson Robotics. Yeah, there's very like limited information that I could find, I guess, because it's one of these things where it's like this new, like very forward thinking technology and like everything behind it is like the engineering, the intention, the research is very like tight-lipped, right? It's like a private robotics company, I believe. Mm. Um, and it's also like funded by like transhumanists who, you know, transhumanism is like essentially people who have a lot of money who are like free, like crypto freezing their like DNA so they can like come back in the future. Yeah. Essentially. It's funny, like I, I don't think of myself as a transhumanist, but I definitely, um, have tendencies but it's not not but to the other degree like mm. because i think because it, it's very atheist i guess but um i don't think much about you know life in general but then so i think of transhumanism as kind of a way to replace the mundane shit that we already have to, you know like all the mundane meaningless shit that we do you know that it, it's just uh, it's a tool to maybe to keep doing those things and I, I'm referring specifically I forgot what the piece is called but I made a piece in February where um, <laughs> I made a AI robot of myself but it was just a broom and a and a, and a comic face that I, I taped to the broom and then it um, it was my my last will and testament kind of um, and it was a yeah robot voiced um, kind of apologizing to everyone I needed to apologize to and all the people that I had to tell that I loved and it was just it was a stand-in for for me after I was dead because you know now we have like memorial Facebook pages and memorial Instagram pages and I you know I'm thinking more about like how minimal how and now with COVID because that was made before COVID but how how people's lives like in this time are have to be reduced to digital representations and so even being on zoom all the time i'm easily replaceable by either recording or i don't even have to really be alive anymore i can just keep doing my job through a, a voice recording and a video recording <laughs> and with a little smart programming that responds to common questions like you're on mute you know <laughs> um please turn your camera on and whatever but so anyway i'm thinking more but the opposite side of transhumanism, just how, how the, whatever broad scope of our lives we, we had, whatever that was, the richness is now like compressed into like a small window of experience or a small window of representation, which is largely digital at the moment, even into death, unfortunately. Not to be too morbid, but like the ways that people aren't allowed to, you know, att attend, um, services right now and I had to go to a lot of virtual memorials recently and yeah so I just don't want to be too morbid but I'm just I'm just thinking about the flip side of transhumanism I mean that's so yeah that's so incredible 
that like you give that kind of like other side of transhumanism with the reading of like uh like COVID-19 and like I guess like my cousin who is like awesome and like my role model is she works in um like she's worked in palliative care for a really long time and like a part of her practice is she talks a lot about how we don't talk about death like in this in like especially in western society as well and so it's like interesting to like revisit these ideas like i guess it's like yeah it's morbid but it's also like i don't feel like too it's not necessarily like a sadness thing like when we we talk about these things for me at least and yeah, I really appreciate it in that context. And just, it's very rich to think about how, I guess like when I decided to play this piece, I didn't even think about it in relation to like, how you were saying how like, right now in COVID-19, our lives are reduced to this like digital avatar or not like reduced, just like significantly shifted to like this digital realm in a way where we haven't had to experience before, but arguably we do experience every day because like, we have social media and we have text messaging and now it's just kind of mandatory mm-hmm. and we're like facing that mandatoriness mm-hmm. and yeah I just didn't even think about that when I decided to like I guess play replay this work because I guess for me it's like I mean I argue that like Uvo couldn't be replaced by I mean you could technically be replaced by, by an AI in like a teaching context but it wouldn't be Vo right like so yeah, I but guess. I mean, I'm not, uh, am I though? You know, like, who, like you know, so I think one, I want to say that I'm not minimizing all the loss that has happened. I'm actually saying mm-hmm. the opposite, which is that it's, it's that people have not been able to mourn people and not being able to have memorials in the same way um, and and have not been able to say goodbye to people in the same ways and how a lot of that has been digitized. Um, so if you were to think about that compression and then to like extend that compression beyond people's lives, so yeah uh so you know even like yeah like being able to communicate with older our older family members and you know their digital representation through video is them for now because that's what we have to kind of accept as them as representations of them so it's complicated and i'm I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that people's lives are reduced i'm saying that they're the way that they've had to connect to other people will be is more digitized but obviously they're internally and by themselves having probably you know of course like rich lives as well yeah my cynicism doesn't read very well like over this the microphone sometimes (laughs) (laughs) yeah everything is kind of like shifted yeah yeah yeah. but um that just illustrates my point so yeah Yeah. (laughs) yeah and I guess like I guess I also just wanted to clarify that like with this piece like I guess like I'm glad that you brought up the discussion of like this other like reading of transhumanism where like I don't I'm like not someone who likes to think in like dichotomies I guess so it's like yeah obviously there are like many like positive aspects to thinking about transhumanism I'm not a transhumanist expert at all but I guess like with this piece I guess I was just like interested I guess I was just like initially interested in like a critique of like who can afford that oh totally it's totally Ayn Rand to like create something in your likeness you know like that all of that is very uh what's his name 
the guy that's doing he's really into that right now the famous guy the rich guy tesla guy Te- oh elon you, musk. yeah elon yeah musk. Yeah. Musk, yeah. Musk, yeah i mean yeah. that's yeah ayn rand like wannabe kind of thing so yeah totally mm-hmm. i think obviously that like drips of that kind of digital church like the new worship like the new you know the new the new ways of like religifying yourself or mythologizing yourself or whatever like all of that totally (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and it requires resources absolutely and yeah you're right it's super um ironic to try to uh connect with connect with minorities through a multi-million dollar project (laughs) yeah but i'm yeah i'm also just to like bring it back to like the work that you were talking about before where you made kind of like I don't know. I just think it's so evocative how you made this AI of yourself with a broom, like with something that is so like tactile and like utilitarian. I'm very, when you just said that, it was, yeah. I became yeah. And then someone was like, that. why did you choose a broom? And I was, I, I don't remember my answer, but I didn't know that at the same week there was um, memes in on Twitter where everyone was standing up brooms that same week. Like brooms were a thing that week. I didn't realize but I think they were standing up brooms and seeing how long it could stand up for before it fell over. That apparently was going viral. Do you know about that? I don't know. No. So it was it was of the zeitgeist, but I wasn't aware of it. Wow, that's incredible. And so was that piece an audio piece as well? Or yeah, definitely. And I, if my phone was not dead, I would uh, I could play that the audio as well. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's audio minimally audio but yes it is mm. it, it's, it was running on loop and it was basically yeah kind of the the my last words on loop mm-hmm. yeah all my all my repentance i guess <sighs> well i guess since we're talking about death uh my the the last piece that i'll play is uh from a play called psychosis 448 by sarah kane and sarah kane is um someone that took her in life uh, and when she, I think she was 27 from she from London um kind of just this incredible playwright I don't know much about plays I have a few favorites like Stoppard I like some Pinter um obviously Beckett and and Kane so this was uh is a binaural piece um so it was made designed for headphones um so if you have headphones on then you know put them on I mean keep them on <laughs> and if you don't put them on but yeah uh and it was i guess a tribute to her to be honest because i had just kind of discovered her in the last that that last couple of years and then read all her pieces and went to went to a play in birmingham i think um and yeah so that the 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 play is just kind of about um mental health i would say and the piece oh yeah the reason i chose it to to play it today was because it was mostly recorded in bunkers in the war bunkers that are um next to where i grew up and they're really similar to the bunkers here even though i haven't been all the bunkers here when i arrived here i felt really at home because it was so similar to where i grew up um and they're they're called the malabar bunkers in sydney australia and they're similarly at a headland and they point out, you know, to the water. Um, and there's kind of vast underground networks and really, you know, sick reverb. <laughs> um, but also it's also where all the 
kids went like it was very far away from everything so it's where all the kids went to have mischief and later on there were lots of bush doofs which is australian for rave a a forest rave or a rave that's outside of the city so yeah there was lots of parties out there and so i just had to have a really um specific set of memories with military bunkers and underground bunkers like the ones here and so when i came here i just immediately became 15 again which is why i have the bleached hair and i've been playing guitar a lot i've just been 15 again it's and i've been wearing all my tie-dye shirts from when i was 15 i'm smiling underneath my mask (laughs) it is yeah it's bizarre how much i've like regressed in a good way um since i arrived but yeah so so i went back to those bunkers at a much later date and uh recorded some field recordings to as a duet i guess with the play yeah suicidal thoughts, plans and intentions, discontinued following hospitalization, sulficone 7.5 mg, slept, discontinued following rash, patient attempted to leave hospital against medical advice, restrained by three male nurses twice at night, patient threatening non-cooperative, paranoid thoughts, Believe hospital staff are attempting to poison him. Short term No other reaction. Mood? Fucking angry. Affectionately. Very angry.
4.48 when Seneca visits, for one hour and twelve minutes I am my wife mind, a fragmented puppet, a grotesque fool, now I'm here and I can see myself, the foul magic of this ending and sorcery. Remember the light and believe the light, nothing matters more. It's all right, it will get better. A small boy had an imaginary friend. He took it to the beach and let bathe in the sea. A man came from the water and took her away. The following morning, the body of a girl washed up on the beach, clutching a fistful of sand. Rest in power, Sarah Kane. So, is there anything we didn't quite get to talking about? Do you want to do you want to say your name in Vietnamese? It's Anne. Just A N. Like Ang. Yeah, Ang. What, like, what's your whole name with the with the middle name as well? It's just Ang Dao. Oh, you don't yeah. have a middle name? No. Well, I mean, on my birth certificate, it's Gabrielle Ang Dao, like oh, nice. anglicized. But oh, oh. when I was a kid, all my relatives and my mom called me Bae Ang. Bae Ang? Yeah. Oh, you're still <laughs> I wish you all could see uh, Gabby's all wrapped up and like all swaddled right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Bae means bebe. Yeah, baby. Yeah, it's like babe. Baby. <laughs> and my sister was Bae Lin. Bae Lin. Your, your Vietnamese is like, my Vietnamese is very It's terrible. my first language, so I have an excuse, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, my, what about yours? Yeah, so my name was butchered through two different immigration processes. So my my like actual name, I don't even know if it made it to my US citizenship, which I just got in June. So hopefully it's, I should check if it's still on there. But it also got scrambled when I um, immigrated to Australia when I was younger. So um, my original name is, is a masculine name, which I love. And it's Guok An. Um, and it means to brave out into the world, you know. Um, and I, and they didn't know I was gonna identify as masculine when I grew up. But I'm curious. I, I always ask, like, why did you name me the equivalent of like David? And they're like, I don't know. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> so, uh, so I love my name, but I also, I would love to be called that all the time. But I just think that it's too much to ask the. Becky's of you know of my life now to you know every introduction I have just have to repeat it over and over again it just it's too much labor <coughs> so my whole name is Yati Wakan um that's my actual name wow that's beautiful yeah smiling but, underneath my mask yeah <laughs> but yeah so like I guess now that I've I've taken Vovo as my artist name the correct pronunciation would be Ya Ya <laughs> which is really weird <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, which means 
karate or martial arts or also means the 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 peel of an orange or something like that yeah when i first read your name i used to do vovenam when i was a kid do you, you used know? to do what vovenam the vietnamese martial arts oh so when i first vovenam like you know yeah i read your name and i immediately had a flashback oh cool like, it's like the it's like the uniform is like kind of like a sim like Vos wearing they're wearing like a kind of a denim blue like a medium denim blue so that's what the uniform looks like nice yeah. that's cool that's like Canadian that's very like is there modern is there Vovenam in the U there must I've be. never heard of there it must be. but I love that y'all are wearing medium denim like that is uh, some stylish martial arts <laughs> yeah. it's better than white gee. I guess like one i mean this might be a, another can of worms or this might be like another podcast but i love leaving them wanting more gabby yeah you know like i have been thinking a, a lot about artists at large who are working in this vein of like and i use the term diaspora very carefully i guess mm -hmm. because they're is a lot of tropes within like diasporic oh, art. Oh yeah, I mean and we're being so diasporic right now. Right? <laughs> yeah, and like I yeah I say this like with a self awareness, um, but I'm just interested in I I listened to this podcast and read this um, text by these two art critics who are based in the UK called the White Pube. Mm -hmm. They're hilarious. Mm -hmm. You should check them out. I will. Super irreverent, funny, intelligent. And Zarina, one of them, uh, wrote this piece called uh, The Problem with Diasporic Art. And it is written through the lens of um, this, like, young woman who's based in the UK. I forget where exactly she's based. Not in London, I think. And she speaks mostly about, like, South Asian art within the context of, like, UK, the UK art scene at large. So though there was many references I couldn't get and I did some like research into the artists she was talking about who were like arguably very commercial but I just like have been thinking about that for a long time um and just like over the years and like I guess it kind of relates back to our former conversation around like how the institution or like whoever is kind of like outside of this um often like reads or like essentializes or fetishizes like sadness in mm -hmm. a way so i guess i guess what i'm trying to like do is like maybe like pry at some thoughts around like like what is diasporic art like how do we situate ourselves in that like even you know like i was born in like so-called canada mm. right like i went to vietnam for the first time in like 2013 and it wasn't what i thought it would be mm. you know and it's just like i want to acknowledge that like distance like i can't speak vietnamese it's it's sh my vietnamese is shit um and so i'm just trying to like yeah think about i guess my positionality yeah and i think that's important and i would say for so many people i've spoken to who are biracial for example um for them diasporic practice is the searching or the displacement or the the not the not you know the not feeling connected or the not feeling good enough or the not feel whatever enough authentic journey whatever I, all of those things i think is m more part of i mean i think that the 
what I when I hear just diaspora, I hear about I hear the words connection and disconnection, or displacement and placement. Um, and so I I totally know what you mean, and I'd love to read that piece. And I think it's sometimes a, a, a pointer. The word to me is an arrow towards someone who is trying to figure that out, figure all of that out, and and figure their own situ, situ location or situating themselves. Um, and you know, it's not defined. And like you said earlier, it's incredibly subjective and, and people can opt in or out. They can be like, nah, I'm not, I'm not a diasporic artist or they are, but I, I've, what I've noticed is what's the common thread is the searching. And yeah. Does that, does that respond? I don't know. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I guess I'm like, cause for me, it's like, I try to really not. I think me a couple of years ago identified with that term. And then as I participated more in like art shows and like whatever, I began to really reject that term in a way that became really confusing and like kind of heartbreaking for me, I guess, because it just, I knew, and to go back to like our conversation around like um, institutions, like holding on to like sadness, the sadness of racialized artists, like I began to really like resent and really begin to like notice how that was like projected onto me. It's mm. like, it's like, I make art. I don't make diasporic art. Like mm. I'm from a diaspora, but mm. like, it's interesting how like trauma or diaspora or like sadness is like projected onto my practice mm. in a way that becomes like taxonomical or like anthropological that like, totally. I, yeah, that I don't, Totally. And I, yeah, I want to say that, like, I imagine I'm not an indigenous artist. I'm not a black artist. And I imagine that, you know, black artists and indigenous artists have to deal with that even like a thousand times more. And, totally. and, um, and I say that because, you know, I, I, I I'm part of a larger communi- com- conversation around, are you, are you, what you write in the grant application? Is that who you are? Are you, the person on the website is that who you are are you the the internal dialogue that you have that no one else hears like what where who are you where are you you know so that again that's a whole other thing like because we can argue that we're not any of those things and yeah so <laughs> sorry no, yeah I don't know, big question mark yeah big question sorry i just had to i just wanted to drop that because i really wanted to workshop with you but yeah tbd maybe. yeah we got three <laughs> more weeks dog <laughs> Yeah. All righty. Well, thank you all. And thank you, Gabby. Thank, thank you, you Sandra. And thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of On Air is Michelle Hagwood, Program Manager for Artist Residencies. Our cover artwork is by Leon Finley, and our music is by Tabor Dark. Centrum's executive director is Robert Berman. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives. 
and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020 Centrum Foundation. Thank you.